welcome to The Lux Files, a podcast for occultists about occultists. I'm your host, Sean, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to subscribe to The Lux Files wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on all the new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of season two of The Lux Files. I'm Sean. Of course, you know me because you have to listen to my voice uh, once a week, and I'm sorry about that. But uh, good news is on this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Lon Milo Duquette. He is a fantastic author and a magician. So welcome, Lon. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. How are you doing? Do, uh, we're doing okay. We, we, uh, we made a move from Southern California to Northern California. Okay. Uh, in the summertime. So we're, we're still not quite settled, but. Right, right, right. It's nice to do something like this to, uh, to uh, change our, our uh, routine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you like uh, Southern California better than Northern or vice versa? I, I have to say I love Southern California okay. better than any place on earth, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because they're, they're quite different. I mean, you know, like uh, climate wise and whatnot. Um, right. it, it's, it's not the same. No. Okay. And, you know, I have, we have lots of friends, uh, you know, pretty much everywhere, but uh, we were there for so long, since 1967. Mm -hmm. okay, so we're, you know, 50 some years, we were in the same town in, in uh, south of Los Angeles, but uh, uh, circumstances just conspired to have us come up, up to Sacramento and and we're uh, we're trying to get used to the fall and winter like we haven't seen down there. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. So like there was no um, no talk of like oh well let's move like to a completely different state like like your heart's really in California. Yes. It, no. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, circumstances beyond our control, or at least it, it appeared that way. So uh, uh, it was not without trauma. Okay. Oh, well, that's too bad to hear. Yeah. Well, I used to move a lot for work, like to the point where I would uh, have to move like once a year or so. And, um, you know, when you're moving that much, it, it, you know, there's a level of stress, of course, because it's always, you know, you, you can only get used to doing that so much. Um, so there's a level of stress to it. But I did, there's an art form to moving and I can unpack my entire place. I got to the point where I can pack my entire place and have it completely set up in a day and make it look like I've been there for years. Oh, wow. Just because, just you know, you just get so used to it. Um, and uh, and also, too, I mean, you know, I'm not alone in this. Everyone's like this. When you move, if you keep a couple of those boxes unopened, to be like, oh, I'll get to them, I'll get to them. You never get to them. So I just got to the point 
uh, where like, well, if I don't open them, they're never going to get open. So I just got to the point where every, every box was open, everything was taken out of every box and set up and, you know, in that, that first day in the new place. And uh, otherwise it's just, you know, you just end up living, living around boxes. Well, you're, you've just painted a picture of our environment. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but, yeah. and, and it was very difficult during the pandemic. You know, we're still in the middle of the, the pandemic. And uh, uh, I was used to traveling so much. Mm -hmm. you know, I travel overseas a lot uh, to do lectures and workshops and and uh, things and about the last 10 years before the pandemic I was out of the country a great deal of the time and all of that just came to a complete stop right know? of course yeah 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 I had to shift gears and do things how much how much time like again prior to the pandemic of course uh how much time do you think you were you spent out of the country about a third of the time. Oh, that's quite a lot. And then traveling within the U.S. as well, I would imagine, oh, quite a bit. Right. But the, the reason it was it was so much, uh, I did a lot of uh, the last, well, yeah, a little over five years before the pandemic. Uh, most of my uh, lengthy travel was uh, in uh, in Beijing and uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong, and uh, so uh, I would go to Beijing uh, every ninety days for a uh, uh, an ongoing class series that I okay. that I did in Beijing, and uh, so that was uh, and then uh, before that. Uh, uh, there were two other visits to, to Beijing. So that's pretty much two years of the time. And I'd be, I'd be there a, a, a little over a month every time. And uh, so that, that really adds up, you know? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. So do you like it? I mean, traveling, traveling is hard, you know, especially when it's not just you know, for like a vacation where you can wake up whenever and do whatever you want. Um, it, it's hard, no matter, like, because I traveled for work a lot, I would be in a different city every day. And even if you love it, it doesn't mean it's not a hard lifestyle. Um, like, do, yeah. you, do you absolutely good, love it? I'm a, I'm a good traveler, but, but uh, I, I, I don't rough it. Okay, yeah. so the, to to get me to get me to go to a foreign country and stay a month, uh, my hosts uh, have to sort of be prepared to be uh, generous <laughs> <laughs> and and know that I'm an old man and I don't like uh, uh, you know it's not that I need to be pampered or anything, but I I, I need a good place to stay and yeah. And a comfortable way to travel and things like that, just because I'm an old fart. Right. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but but you're right. I mean, you can't go to a place 
where you're going to be for, you know, a month or a little over a month and, you know, teaching and living in, you know, a hostel or something like that. You, you have to, you know, live as like normal as, as possible or else you're just, you're not going to be on your A game. Right. And, and uh, you have to sort of be very flexible because you're dealing with translators and, and uh, uh, you get a feel for what the, what your audience uh, is. And so I had to spend most of my uh, uh, downtime in the, in hotel rooms, getting ready for the next day's mm -hmm. uh, thing, you know, because I can prepare as much as I can, but I have no idea what they really want for the next day or, or what they're really going to need yeah. for the next day. So, uh, uh, but I sort of view it, and I've d done this for, for well over 20 years, I sort of view my travel as a uh, monastic like a monastic experience mm -hmm. so the uh the standing in lines at the airport and the customs and the you know, passports and the visas and everything else uh i can't allow that to irritate me right i i have to i have to view that as as a, a devotional act uh, and in the West, you don't get that opportunity to, to uh, develop that mindset, uh, you know, out of a monastery, outside the, the confines of a monastery itself. So, mm -hmm. you know, hey, uh, I set myself well for six weeks, I'm going to be alone. And I'm just going to dig it you know? yeah yeah and uh so i sort of view all, all of the travel experience uh sort of as a spiritual discipline yeah uh, i like traveling I, I like traveling alone a lot actually i i prefer traveling alone more than traveling with people and when it comes to flying like flying seems so magical to me that um and it's so incredible like it's just something i've never gotten used to no matter how many times i've been on an airplane and it could be just like a you know um like a commuter plane like flying from you know houston to san antonio and then back that evening you know like just even like quick little jumps like that but it never it's just amazing being that high up in the air looking down at the earth and so i kind of i guess i kind of saw it perhaps the same way that you do as sort of like a like um like a spiritual process because um i mean you're standing in customs you're waiting for your turn to pass through that magical portal that allows you to fly like how, you know, how, how magical. Yeah. Why, yeah, why wreck it with, with um, you know, 
well, not anxiety, but, you know, so everything's not going according to plan. Why wreck it by pulling a Karen on people that have no control over the situation? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. How, 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 did, how did you just better your life by having a complete meltdown in front of hundreds of people freaking out, freaking out on um, yeah. airline employees that don't actually control the weather. Right. You know, um, you know, you have a choice, like be miserable or do your best to be content with the situation, you know? Yeah, well, I'm a pretty good traveler, mm -hmm. but I haven't had a chance to do it in the last two years. And uh, I don't know if I'm ready to get back on a plane quite yet. I'm, you know, I'm vaccinated and boosted and, and uh, uh, but uh, I'm still not prepared because I don't think, uh, I really want to be in that sealed up aluminum tube yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for, yeah. for any length of time right at the moment. So, so oh, I'll no. I, I don't blame you. I mean, you know, the, the US-Canada border finally opened up. I'm in no hurry to rush down to the States. Uh, here in Canada, you have to be double vaxxed to get on uh, a plane or a train or a ferry. And that's all well and good, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a hurry. Yeah, so, and we're really lucky to have things like, uh, uh, like we're doing right here. Uh, oh, Zoom has been a godsend or, you know, whatever, you know, um, um, video conferencing, uh, program people are using I use zoom it's been a godsend I mean I'm I'm a little I I'm getting a little tired of of it still being such a big form of my communication um but you know things are slowly you know like the city that I live in um we have like one active case so the fact that bars and restaurants are open I feel a lot more confident you know, finally stepping into one. So my social life has kind of, you know, um, kind of grown a bit, but not the way it was pre-pandemic, you know. I think it'll, I think I'll be, it'll be a while before, a long while before I feel 100% comfortable being around so many people. Well, with the craziness in the world, it may never get back to what we thought we had. <laughs> so we better we better just get used to uh, uh, the now that we have in front of us and make the yeah. best of it. Yeah, I mean, I never want to minimize the um, the seriousness of the pandemic and all the people worldwide who have died all the, the people that have lost loved ones, all the people that are suffering from long COVID. And then on top of that, all of the um, economic hardships that people are facing. I, 
never want to minimize that or downplay that when I say what I'm about to say. Um, there was, for me, an upside to COVID in that, like, I can't leave my house. I live alone. I can't leave my house. Like, we were literally under, like, not just lockdown at one point, not just, you know, businesses being locked down, but, um, like, do not leave your house orders when it was really bad here in my province. Um, like, you, you can leave for you know, going to the grocery store, going to a doctor's appointment, something like that. And that was pretty much it, which was fine because I mean, everything was closed anyway. So those were the only things that were open, pharmacies, grocery stores, you know. Um, but yeah, like there's, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. And I just really... Um, really just immersed myself in magic and um, started um, playing around with like my daily practice. And, you know, cause things like that can get kind of stale, you know, uh, your daily practice of doing like the same old, same old and um, doing a lot of experimenting with, with ideas and concepts and whatnot. And uh, because I had the time, because there was nothing else to do. You know, there was no going out. There was no seeing friends. There was no going to a bar, uh, going to a movie, nothing. There was just nothing. And um, I would have gone crazy. And see, I'm not much of a television person. So for me to sit and, and turn on the television, well, that's not gonna work. You know, that's just not gonna do it for me. So I just totally threw myself into um, magic and, um, um, I feel like I benefited greatly from that sort of, uh, dedication. I think that's, you know, barring, I never experienced another worldwide pandemic in my life. I think that 18 months will be the closest I'll ever get to, um, like, like a, you know, uh, like a monastic lifestyle where you're, you know, in that, magic or, or religion 24 seven um all you're doing is like learning and practicing and doing and, and and whatnot i think that's the closest i'll ever get to that sort of that sort of concept yeah now um normally with like there's there's a few things that i do want to talk with you about specifically normally with my um uh, podcast, I like to talk about the first instant, um, the the event or, or whatever that happened in, in the guest lives that was like, oh, like, like, you know, looking back on it, reflecting on it, like, this was like my starting point that set me on like my magical path or spiritual path, you know, whoever, depending on who I'm talking to. Um, and a lot of people, they have like some sort of like childhood incident or event or something. And I'm trying to think, you're really good with sharing anecdotes about your life in, you know, like your books and, and on podcasts and whatnot. And I was thinking about it earlier today. Like, I don't know, I can't really recall if you've ever mentioned anything happening in your childhood that if you look back on it, you're like, oh, that's kind of explains 
who I am today. Was there anything like that, like in your early childhood? Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, I was born in 1948, okay? So after World War II, uh, but, uh, when I was about, I was still sleeping in the crib, okay? I was still an infant. And just as I started to walk, uh, I uh, complained of a pain in my leg. And in 1950, that meant polio. Mm. Okay. And, uh, or it could mean polio. Mm -hmm. And there's kids next door, across the street, everything else with polio. And that was full-blown iron lung. It right. was, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. It was epidemic. And, uh, but the timing of of it was uh, unusual because I was still wallowing in my pre-linguistic, pre-mobility, infantile brain images and thoughts and stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a, much of a language to uh, to get in the way of non-linguistic thought forms. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And you lose that. Everybody loses it when they start to walk around mm -hmm. and get out in the world. Okay. You, you get out of the internal thing that you've had since you're floating around in your uh, ambiotic fluid, you know. Uh, you, you start to lose that and then go out in the world and you lose whatever magic you had as as a infant this is why you know why can't i remember a previous incarnation well you know you forced yourself to forget it you know when right. you're smoking. and uh, so when they uh examined me uh they discovered that i didn't have polio but i had uh, <clears throat> a specific curious bone disease in my hip and they call it Perthes, Perthes syndrome. And uh, there'd be a Perthes knee syndrome. This is a Perthes hip syndrome. Um, and it's where the uh, bone met bone in the hip socket kind of thing. Mm, okay. And uh, there was no cure for it. They didn't know why it happens it just happens with uh uh you know x number of uh, the population and there's no treatment for it other than to completely immobilize the patient and hope they outgrow it mm. you know when, okay and uh, so that's what they did they kept me in the crib okay and i loved it okay i just <laughs> <laughs> it was, and they left me uh, alone. They didn't neglect me at all. My parents didn't neglect me. 
but I was such a well-behaved crib resident, okay, that I could just stare at the ceiling and drift in and out of consciousness about every other 10 minutes, 24 seven. So in other words, I, I didn't sleep for eight hours and be up for it. No, I was dreaming these pre-infantile dreams for 10 minutes. And then I was staring at the ceiling, feeling groovy and, and uh, <laughs> you know, getting my diapers changed and stuff. And so I, as I was growing, when others are out in the world and their, their brains are starting to crystallize uh, and grow and mature, my growing brain got a chance to crystallize the pre-linguistic infantile memories and put it in a part of my growing brain that I could retain, if that makes sense. Yep, yep. So part of my musings while I was staring at the ceiling and dreaming and things were visions of me as an adult. Uh, and uh, remember, this is 1950. We didn't have a television until around 1954. Right. So I hadn't seen television. Uh, to my knowledge, I hadn't listened to enough radio to, to uh, get any uh, impression. I certainly didn't go to the movies or anything. Mm. And there's just very vivid uh, uh, images of me as an adult. And uh, uh, one in, uh, in like a muddy field with a bunch of other uniformed people. Uh, and uh, I, I can still hear uh, the dropping of of pebbles and dirt clods uh, ringing against the helmet and uh, uh, explosion. Like, like a little bit more modern uniforms, like we're not talking like uniforms from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. You're thinking more like... World War One. Okay, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I would only later identify that when I learned more about World War One. I. I said, oh, well, shit, that's... That's what, that's mm. what that was, you know? And there was uh, another one. And uh, wait, before you, so you're, so you're seeing this image, which you later realize, oh, that's you know from World War One. Um, are you feeling emotions? I was feeling. You would think that you would be attached. To the emotional impressions but I wasn't okay okay in the same way that when you uh, 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 remember say an event that happened in high school mm -hmm. uh, maybe a even a traumatic event that happened in high school even looking back maybe 20 years later 
you are incredibly detached from that. Okay? Right. Uh, even, even though you can still be embarrassed and things like uh, uh, like that and mad or, or something, still you are detached enough to say, no, that's, that's just me. It's part of, it's part of my uh, 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 memory, memory world. And uh, it, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't freak me out. And not only that, it didn't kill me. Mm -hmm. Because I'm here. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, but those memories, and there was another one where I, I, I was, uh, I, uh, it was in California with palm, Southern California with palm trees and, and, uh, I, and I got in this beautiful little roadster of some, mm -hmm. some kind and cruising down what I'd later find out was Pacific Coast Highway down, going down to Ensenada, Mexico. Okay. And, and uh, but the emotional attachment was every mile of that trip and me even getting in the car and everything was, was motivated by extreme excitement and horniness. Okay. <laughs> I was going to meet a woman there. Okay. And there was this huge adult kind of, you know, as a baby, I didn't know what I was going to quite do with her, but I knew there was something very, you know, important that I was going to do. And uh, <laughs> so, so uh, uh, both of those things started me thinking uh, as, a, as an infant in the crib, I was infinite, I was thinking, well, when did that happen? You know, when was that? Was I, was I, because I'm, look, I'm a baby. I'm, you know, I'm crapping all over myself a couple times a day, you know. I wasn't driving a car. Uh, so was I off before I was on? Mm. What, what happened? Did I just wake up like this, you know? And that frustrated me because I tried to picture myself being off and I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, I knew I've, I've only been here just a, a little while. I, you know, I'm, this is pretty new to me, you know, all of this. It's, was I off? And then I tried to, well, what was it like being off? And I tried to picture myself being off. And it was impossible. I, I, would, I would snap out of me being off from this center, but I would always pop on someplace else mm. uh, as somebody else. It's, it's, it's impossible to actually describe it. Right. But it was so frustrating. And every night or day or whenever it was I was doing it, I would get to that point about, no, I, I can get off, but I pop on someplace else. 
And the only thing that would keep me from actually going Edgar Allan Poe bonkers, <laughs> okay, was for me to surrender to the fact that I've never been off, mm. that there is no offness. <laughs> right, right. There is no offness in being, okay? If I'm being enough to be right now, than I've always been. And once I surrendered to that, in a sense, magical things started to happen. Right. And that's, uh, that's oh, fascinating. I couldn't imagine. I, I, I just, and I, I think most people couldn't imagine uh, grasp what that would be like you know being so young and experiencing that because you have nothing to you have no framework you just I, I mean I can't even conceive of of something like that well it's just lucky timing because everybody's like that mm. there was just this one little window in in my physiological and psychological development. Just one golden moment to get me into that situation. And, and all of the other factors of, of uh, a family that would care for me and allow me to do that uh, were, were just incredibly uh, unique and fortunate. There were I saw a documentary called uh, Something Brothers uh, Message or something. It was a Mystic Fire video uh, uh, documentary about uh, maybe 30 years ago of a, a Peruvian, I believe, uh, South American uh, uh, mountain people, so Inca-ish, you know, mm. uh, an indigenous tribe who were uh, uh, incredibly wise, T Tibetan kind of wise. Okay. And uh, I think they were called the Mummers or some, I, I, I forget. But they, uh, they were incredibly mystical uh, tribe that would only come down from the mountains to, uh, to trade and then go back up to their, their uh, mountain villages. But they were ruled by the uh, a shamanistic uh, hierarchy, similar to the the Aboriginal, the Aborigines in Australia and, uh, and New Zealand. Okay, they're very in touch with nature and things like that. And how they did that. Well, they did it in a very scientific way that you probably couldn't be able to legally pull off here in uh, uh, in Western culture. 
but they would um, uh, choose an infant in a similar way as the Tibetans choose incarnations of, okay. They would choose an infant to be, to grow to be the next shaman, holy person. And they uh, uh, had like what, I think they called it like a womb cave that had uh, uh, where the mother and a new child and one or two uh, like midwives or handmaids that made a beautiful, it's very, it's very dark in the cave, uh, but it's warm and it's comfortable and it's nourishing and it's full of loving attendance. And the attendants would come in from the outside world. And as the child is growing up, one, two, three, four years old in this cave, okay, they would tell them, they would describe all of the details of the world around them. Interesting. And the, the rocks, and the trees and the rivers and the birds and the insects and they would describe in wonderful detail and they would treat everything in the natural world around them as if they were living spirits mm. so it wasn't just a rock it was spirit rock Okay, and and so by the time the child was ready to start, you know, squinting and going out into the real world, they recognized everything that had been described to them. But when they looked at them, they were seeing the real spirit behind it. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and the Kabbalists, of course, would say, okay, they spent all this time, uh, you know, because the Kabbalists uh, have this view of uh, everything has a world behind it. Okay? Right. There's, here's a material world, but there, there's, a, there's a, the idea world behind the, the physical one. And then there's a, a more gen, uh, general and generic world behind that. Like this chair is a hard chair. Okay. But there was an idea that was this chair. Okay, so there's that world. The, mm. the chair is alive in the, in the mind blueprint of the chair. And behind that is another world of just ass resters. Okay, the generic get off your feet idea. Okay, yeah. and then behind that, there's another world that is just the world of rest. Mm. <laughs> you know? So, and, you know, Plato talked about this in the, in the Republic, but uh, uh, that, that whole idea that what we're seeing is just the crust of what it, of what it is, okay? 
-hmm. including ourselves when we look at ourselves in the, uh, in the mirror. And ultimately, that final world, that final truth, that final reality is wall-to-wall -wall universal. In other words, it's like you and me, we're asleep. We're sleep talking right now. <laughs> and sooner or later, you're gonna, you're gonna wake up to realize uh, that we're really more uh, attached, more, we're really each other. Yeah. Okay. And, and pretty soon, you, you, going back to that Kabbalah thing, you know, they have that tree of life uh, diagram. There's 10 emanations. There's Godhead at number one, the singularity, the absolute. And then there's two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Those are just levels of falling asleep. Mm. And we're down in 10 thinking that we're separate from each other. Right. But we just keep waking up and waking up and waking up and waking up until we eventually wake up to realize we've been each other all along. I like those are those are really good analogies, especially the one with the chair. Um, that's that's a really good way of describing that. I'm going to remember that. I can see myself using that because, you know, it's I find. Um, you know we're talking about like like magical concepts or spiritual concepts and uh they can be sometimes quite difficult to grasp um so when you can take something you know like quote unquote real world like a chair and be able to describe that chair in the four worlds it can help people to uh understand that concept uh, a bit more which i have to say you're really good at doing um in your books you're really good at um taking complex uh concepts and uh breaking them down and make them easy for everyone to really understand that's the only way i can understand right yeah <laughs> it's got to be simple if you're going to try to get it through to me you know so yeah yeah so that's uh that's a good analogy i'll definitely uh i'll definitely remember that I'm just so fascinated by the story of yours of 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 being able to see, you know, uh, presumably um, a lot of your past lives at such a young age and and just the whole circum. I mean, you know, some people talk about their past lives, seeing their past lives as young children. But if you're confined to a crib and you have such a limited understanding of the outside world to to be seeing those images it just it, it just this is fascinating this is just completely fascinating to me i've got a postscript to that mm, okay um in uh i guess i was 17 or 18 years old uh I moved back from Nebraska where my parents had uh, kidnapped me and held me hostage for, <laughs> <laughs> not really seemed like it in the, in the barbaric Midwest. Uh, Cause I was born in California. Yeah. Um, 
the well, I was still going to high school in, in Nebraska. I, I got a Life magazine or a Look magazine uh, uh, article about Timothy Leary and uh, uh, Dr. Alpert, uh, who later became Ram Dass, uh, and the experiments they were doing at Harvard with uh, LSD. And the second I read that, I said, that's for me, okay. <laughs> I tell you the first opportunity I'm gonna get to do that. I'm gonna take that LSD. And uh, so I, I, after high school, I immediately, I mean immediately uh, moved back to California and uh, went to Orange Coast College, which was the party psychedelic school 1966 oh man it was i i i was a drama major but i really majored in the 60s right okay and uh, i was a, a folk singer i was a singer songwriter even then and uh uh i was playing at this saloon in in uh Belmont Shore, and I'm just like I, 17 years old, okay, I shouldn't even be in bars, you know, right. and, uh, but uh, during a break, I went to the bathroom, and there's this kind of surfer looking guy in the bathroom saying, would you like to buy some LSD? And I said, I sure would, you know? <laughs> And, uh, so it was in those days it was so old it was actually in a capsule okay it wasn't a sugar cube it is better than it was in a capsule like that so i had no idea what the dosage was or anything like that and uh <laughs> but anyway i uh took that home and truly that was it if we were looking for a, a red letter day when it started, when all this started, okay, it was that day, and uh, completely deconstructed myself and put myself back together, you know, in about a five-hour, five-hour session that I'm still uh, not completely through with, right. And, uh, so I, I uh, told my brother. Uh, who was six years older than I lived in California too? I said, "You're going to have to have to try this, you know." And I'll I'll babysit you through the first one if you're nervous, and then you can babysit me, and we'll go back and forth and back and forth, and and uh, which we did. And finally, uh, and we we're having all sorts of wonderful mystical kind of uh, uh, things, and we got ourselves into. Uh, 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 Vivekananda and uh, uh, Yogananda and uh, uh, Zen stuff. Okay, we <laughs> we knew that's where this was. That's where this was heading, you know. Mm. And finally, uh, we decided. Look, in February, late February, he had some time off of work. And I could take, I didn't mind skipping school. So let's take a whole bunch of acid 
and go out to Joshua Tree because the, there's a there's a full moon <laughs> and let's drop that that acid in the desert and watch the sun come up and let's not come back from the desert till we're holy men. Wow. And we, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we did. Okay. I told you there was a link to that other mm -hmm. that reincarnation. There is. I'm sorry to take all this time. No, no, I love it. Uh, so we dropped, okay, it was at uh, a place called uh, uh, Giant Rock at Joshua Tree National Monument. And huge boulders, and we sat up on top of these huge boulders. It was one of the most beautiful, scary, awesome places on earth. And the full moon was going down in the west behind us as the sun was coming up. So it was a perfect alignment between sun and sun and moon. So we were like shish kebobbed, <laughs> you know, on the sun and moon's perfect opposition. Yeah. But because there were no straight lines, there were no right angles, there were no straight lines uh, for us to look at, just these huge misshapen rocks and wild plants and cactus and Joshua trees. The visual distortions of the psychedelic really had no effect because the, the freaking landscapes look psychedelic <laughs> already. You know? Right. Okay. So it it pushed everything inside, and after a while we we uh, stopped talking to each other, but we didn't stop communicating mm. with each other. We don't even remember when the talking stopped. And, and it became clear to each of us that we'd been brothers before quite recently and that we were our own great uncles. Oh, interesting. And, and we didn't know very much about either one of these uncles. It certainly wasn't on the forefront of our mind because our father would just not talk at all about his family. Okay. And the only thing that, that uh, we uh, uh, could recall about him even mentioning these two guys was that they each died within about six months of each other before either of us were born. Okay. Um, in the late 30s or early 40s. My brother was born in 42. I was born in 48. And, uh, but it wasn't like, oh, that I bet we're, no. It was like, here we are again, you know. And one of the uncles, uh, well, chances are one or both of them were in World War One. Mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, one of them was the private secretary to the movie studio owner 
producer, Hal Roach. Okay. Laurel and Hardy. Right. Okay, the big silent movie in, in early talkie, uh, uh, Hal Roach. And all my life, I've identified with the early Hollywood movie history. Okay. There was my there was my roadster. There was my trip down the coast highway. To oh, Virginia. right. Okay. Okay. Um, and then I, because I always wondered why I was so delighted with uh, Laurel and Hardy mm. uh, films and uh, uh, the our gang comedies because I did see those once, once we had television, they played those. And I, I totally identified with, uh, with uh, the whole movie making, early Hollywood movie making uh, 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 scene. And then all my life, every time there was a school play or something like that, I was, you know, hey, I'm, I'm your lead man, you know? That's awesome. <laughs> Leave it to me, you know, I'll, I'll do it, whatever it is. If it's on the stage, I'm there, you know. And uh, so that's a little postscript to that, uh, to those particular memories, because they yeah. were fresh in, fresh uh, uh, in the forefront of my uh, uh, memory. And then I thought, perhaps it's not reincarnation, per se, as we would think of it, and as the Buddhists think of it, perhaps it's just uh, a phenomena of, uh, of uh, genetic. Mm -hmm. And then it dawned on me, maybe reincarnation and genetic memory are pretty much one and the same thing anyway. Mm -hmm. Because aren't we all mammals, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or uh, in a sense, aren't we all carrying the same genetic memory um, of our, uh... I think the dog recognizes the profundity of that thing. <laughs> but anyway. So, well, you know, it's certainly it's certainly something to think about because, uh, you know, we, we talk, we we use all these terms and, and these concepts and we so often talk about them as if they're they're absolute and they're proven. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, if you believe in reincarnation, you're going to talk about it like, you know, every scientist in the world knows how it works and has you know tested right. it and proven it and that's obviously not the case same with genetic memory same with you know the collective unconscious so it's it's which in a way is great because we can have these conversations and we can we can wonder and we can debate and we can discuss and just because number one it's fun to do but number two I've never been like as an example, I've never been really partial to the idea of, you know, the the great collective unconscious. When we die, we just all return to this 
you know, sea of, of, you know, human consciousness and, and you're no longer an individual. I don't like that. Um, but let's, you know, let's have a discussion about it. Let's debate it. Um, what's that? That, you know, there's a, there's probably a scrap of, of, uh, uh, validity to that, but but it's too linear. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the whole idea of, of reincarnation vis-a-vis -vis, uh, genetic memory is 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 a sleight of hand uh, uh, illusion that act in order to actually understand it you have to be able to sort of break into a quantum uh, quantum uh, level of dimensional thinking mm -hmm. or trans-dimensional thinking because there is no time, okay? Time, <laughs> there ain't no time, okay? Right. And uh, the... Uh, that right away takes uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, qualities of what we would think of as reincarnation. Just takes it right out of the out of the picture. Right. When you, when you take time out of the equation and and realize that everything uh, is occurring in a in a super now that we can't wrap our meat brains around, then, then uh, discussions of, of reincarnation or genetic memory or discussions of anything, magic including, included, is uh, uh, we're speaking about a, a reality we can't understand with a vocabulary that is Un, uh, is not up to the with vocabulary that just doesn't have the words to, to uh, d discuss it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We, we we don't have the words don't yet exist for us to be able to have these sort of conversations about these these concepts. You know, and it's interesting talking about time and whatnot because. When you, when you, I don't want to say factor in time, but if you're going, you know, on, if, if, if you have some sort of concept, linear concept of time, like there was a beginning, there's going to be an end and it's this straight line, then reincarnation can only be from something in the past. And I don't know, that doesn't sit right with me. You know, I, I don't know if that's, yeah, that's just, that, that's just not right. Like when, when I really think about, I mean, at one time, you know, for sure, I, because, you know, I exist in the world we live in. Uh, there's a beginning, there's an end, time moves forward. And if you believe in reincarnation, those are your past lives. And I was fine with that. Um, 
but that just doesn't seem logical. Maybe logical is not the right word. You know, a lot of people listen to the kinds of conversations that we have and be like, uh, you're using the word logical, really? You're just talking about invoking angels into a crystal ball. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, it's, it's too neat. A beginning, you know, a straight line of time to the end. It's too neat. Well, the... And the universe is not neat and tidy. No. Not at all. I use the, the analogy of uh, the deck of tarot cards. Because uh, the tarot cards got the 22 trumps, which are totally capitalistic, uh, just in the way that they're ordered. Uh, mm -hmm. Got the three mother letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the seven double letters and the 12 simple letters. And the, the, the three... Uh, mother letters create up and down and right and left and forward and backwards. So they literally create space mm. and movement within space is creates time. So that springing from a singularity to go up and down and right and left and front and back, all of a sudden you sort of uh, uh, spoil the the perfectness of nothing, <laughs> you know, you create that, that center thing and then up mm -hmm. and down, and then movement, relative movement within that space creates time. And so you got the center point in the, the six sides of a cube that you've just formed. And uh, there's the seven, you know, double letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, anyway, and the 12 edges of the cube or the, the 12 letters. And so there's the 22 trumps of the, of the tarot and then you've got those four worlds i was talking about the, the chair world and the idea chair world. okay those are the four suits and each of them have a tree of life uh uh subdivision so if that part of the the being sort of breaks up like fractals mm -hmm. and uh, and so you, you end up with 78 uh, uh total cards uh, and uh, if you put them all in order, that's the way the universe really is. It's like your tarot deck in order. Mm -hmm. it, it's perfect. It's all, that's just perfect. But when you shuffle the deck, <laughs> when you shuffle the deck to, to give yourself a reading or a snapshot of, of uh, how you're perceiving the universe at the moment, you haven't disturbed the perfection of the tarot deck, okay? Your shuffle deck is how your screwed up perception of the universe yeah. is yeah. at the moment. Well, that's that's how each of us each of us is. We are an unshuffled deck of tarot cards. That's our that is our identity. We're already working just fine. We're already just a perfect, unspoiled, unwrinkled reflection of what it is. And it's our defecting freaking powers <laughs> of perception that is, is making us so damn unhappy. You know? Oh, that's, you know, 
when you put it like that, it's like I spend a lot of time. Um, magicians spend a lot of time. Um, I don't want to say perfecting themselves, but um, it's it's almost like we're just trying to reorder our. Like you say, we're fine. We're just now trying to reorder our perception of the universe, and that kind of puts a different on the surface, a different spin on what we do as magicians and mystics in a way. Um, it, it almost sounds a little deflating, um, but if our higher self is that unshuffled deck, then that's what we're working towards. Then that makes a little bit more sense. The Enochian system of magic, you know, John Dee, you know, the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, yeah. Oh, I know him very well. Not personally. Not personally. I tried to get him on the podcast. Hasn't returned my emails. So, John Dee? Uh, I've tried. I've tried. Okay. <laughs> uh, keep trying. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's uh, two pieces of equipment. It took them almost three years to, uh, uh, through angel communications, through crystal balls and black mirrors and things like this, using alphanumeric squares and one letter at a time and things like that. There's two major pieces of equipment. There's this thing called the holy table, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, which is the holy ground, I guess, for the, uh, the center of your working area. So it's supposed to be a perfect miniature working model of the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that the, the Temple of Solomon was supposedly, uh, the proportions were such that it supposedly was a perfect miniature working model of the cosmos. Mm. So if you got one of those, it vibrates with the same universal perfection as, as uh, uh, the macrocosm. Okay? Yeah. But there's another thing that you wear around your neck called the lamin, and it's constructed in such a way that all of the perfection of that holy table is represented on the lamin, except a few uh, kind of important things are just a little bit out of whack. Okay, so in other words, the holy table's perfect, and the lamin has all of the components of perfection, but it's a little bit out of whack, sort of like a shuffle deck. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the magician wears the out of whack thing as if to say, this is my badge. And my badge says, I understand that I'm perfect, but I sure don't feel perfect. Yet. <laughs> Why don't I feel perfect? I know I'm perfect, but you know, and uh, then you, if you've constructed both of those things, Okay, and understand the perfection of the holy table. You, oh, I get it, and oh, I, and I get why this one that I'm wearing around my neck isn't perfect. 
once you've gone through the trouble, <laughs> the pain in the, in the butt to make those things, you sit down with that lamin around your neck at that perfect table. It feels like that perfect table is reaching out to the potential perfection of the lamin and you. And it's like you're drawn into it as if to say, I'm yearning. I'm sitting here in front of perfection and the osmosis of the perfection is sucking me toward that perfection too. It is a sublime concept and it, it's, it's humbling and exalting at the same time and and it really once you've kind of grasped that it really makes you prepared to realistically look into that mirror and talk with a hierarchy of uh, of uh, superior intelligences that ultimately are you, but you just don't know it yet. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. You just don't know it yet, you know. I, uh, this year, took a, a deep dive into uh, Anakian magic, um, more like what people call the purist as opposed to the, the Golden Dawn Anakian. Right. Um, Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Lux Files. I'm not just the host of this podcast. I'm also the owner of Leilokan's Owen. I make beeswax and scented spell candles, loose stick and liquid incense, anointing rolls and bath salts. So once you're done listening to this episode, why don't you head on over to my website at www.leilokanzawin.com and check out my products. For your convenience, the link to the website is also in the show notes. And um, it's been it's been really interesting. It's been really fascinating, truly. Um, and it, you know, it's it's outside of my wheelhouse because I'm so used to you know the 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 pomp and ceremony of of ritual, and. Uh, so you know to to sit down and and to pray as as you know like sort of like your only form of of um preparation you uh, into a nervous breakdown is and and when you have a nervous breakdown you can talk to god <laughs> yeah and uh it's it's been yeah it's just it's been a really really fascinating um journey and you have a really good sort of, um, uh, like your introduction to Anakian magic um, is is really interesting, and I think um, it can be inspiring to to people that are interested in getting into Anakian because. You know, so many people, oh, well, you have to have the right tools and the perfect tools and you have, they have to be all done and they have to be all perfect before you can even think about, you know, doing your first operation or else, or else you'll go crazy 
and and have a a psychotic break and um i don't know how um you're not really active on social media like you you're you don't you're not on twitter and stuff like that facebook yeah yeah facebook yeah um you see, I, I see a lot on twitter uh people with um talking about anakian um oh you'll go crazy you'll go crazy you'll lose your mind da, 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 da. and i think that could genuinely scare people off you know uh from from trying anything new really because you can you can say you know that about any system of magic oh if you don't do it perfectly look at all the talk like oh if, if you don't do uh um uh guetic magic perfectly uh demons bad things are going to happen to you Ooh, you know what i mean um and that's just it's just not it's just not true and i'm not uh saying tools aren't important at all well, the, um, tools, the tools are in you. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just wood. And if, if you can't make a paper ring magical, you can't make a golden ring magical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. My Pele ring is um, cardstock. It's it's a metallic gold cardstock, and it's one of my most favorite magical possessions and i mean you know like my lotus wand is done perfectly um to specification um my my elemental tools they're all done perfectly to specification. and i mean I, I i love all my tools um but my ring i just absolutely love and it's a piece of paper that yeah. I, that i painted on you know um but I didn't even start with any tools. I started holding a sigil. Let's see what will happen, you know? And so like your, your beginnings with Anakian were really experimental as well. Yeah. And it involved a, uh, uh, like a group class. Right. And uh, uh, for, I don't know how many years, over 20 years. Well, no, uh, Monday Night Magic class was we did for over 40 years, once once a week, and for three years it was uh, twice a week. And uh, every year there'd be a series of Enochian stuff. But uh, the group Enochian workings aren't the ideal. Yeah. Uh, application of the of the system what group workings are good for is to prove <laughs> how easy and how safe it is mm -hmm. okay uh, and and if you resonate to it to give you enough uh information and enough uh, uh tools at your disposal to go off and do it, do it on your own, mm -hmm. because the the perhaps the greatest uh, application of it is the etheric uh, uh, end of it, where you scry the the thirty aethers systematically, mm -hmm. 
and that's very similar to Kabbalistic uh, uh, meditations on the tree of life. The, but you get used to working on those planes and become co comfortable with what visions are and what visions aren't. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, Which can take practice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And, and the more you practice, uh, the better you get. Mm. But it's, it's something that you realize it's, it, it's so very natural. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I've always been able to do this. I just haven't been able to shift my, shift my center of consciousness to where it is that I'm appreciating that. Mm. And uh, uh, so that's what the, the, the group workings were, were super good for. But it was very interesting that when you've got 20 people, uh, uh, say after you, you do a call that uh, opens up a specific aether and you sit quietly for five minutes or 10 minutes, and then you compare notes with 20 people, it's very interesting to see the thread of similarities mm -hmm. in, uh, uh, in the visions, uh, except the individual cast of characters within everybody's visions are totally different, but the plots are the same. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, I think that, I think we are sort of hardwired in the same way, you know, because uh, to do a specific Enochian call, it's like ringing a big bell or a tuning fork of a specific frequency and everybody sort of gets high in their own way hearing that bell ring okay and then whatever it was that was going through their uh uh their mind whatever whatever their particular center of consciousness needed to reveal to them pops through mm -hmm. and, that, and that's why it's a highly personal a highly personal thing yeah yeah because none of us have need to hear the same message. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but like you guys didn't start with, you know, all the tools and, you know, the table of practice and everything like that. Like this was really bare bones work on your part. And LSD, Anakian magic done without the tools. And you haven't gone crazy. Look at that. Well, that's debatable. <laughs> Hopefully, if I have, it's in a socially acceptable way. Right. Know? Yeah. But, you know, I think my point is, is and I, I would think that you would agree with me, like, just start, just do it, start. Yeah. And and I, I and it's not even this isn't specific to Anakian, um, but so many people I think get held back by the idea I don't know enough, I don't have all the right equipment, blah 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 blah. You'll never know enough. You'll never have enough uh, the right equipment. Right. So just 
just start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't ever see myself um, uh, engraving the sigillum into beeswax five times. You know what I mean? Like that's, I, I, I just don't see myself uh, doing that at all. Um, I'm crafty, uh, you know, with making tools and whatnot. I don't think I'm going to do that. So, um, you know, they, you know, they may be made by someone else. They may be paper pasted on wood discs. Um, it's not going to stop me from doing. And I don't know, there's, you, you could possibly say that the more, the, the tools don't, well, the tools don't make the magic period, you make the magic. But I suppose you could have the argument that the the more quote unquote proper the tools are, the more effective your magic can be. I think that is a conversation we could have. Um, but the, oh, if you don't have everything right, you can't start. Um, isn't that's that's a non-starter for me like that's not even a conversation worth having well you, you always feel better uh about yourself when you're clean and you're wearing some neat clothes and things like that uh, but you're yourself whether whether you you're not clean and and uh, are wearing shabby clothes okay mm -hmm. you're you're still yourself. It's just a psychological edge. Yeah. Uh, the the danger comes when you when you think, oh, there's a demon going to say I there's a typo in my right. Yeah. 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 There's a spell check demon that's going. Oh, I got a typo in my single. That's Wait. why I'm. Yeah. That's yeah. why my, she won't fall in love with me. Yeah. When I was uh, a teenager and I first got into uh, magic, it was witchcraft. Um, I remember being almost terrified of doing spells and rituals because of the, oh, if you screw up, if you trip over your words, if you mispronounce something, bad things can happen. And uh I mean, looking back on that, of course, you know, that's that's laugh worthy. Um, but as a 14 year old, I mean, you're buying these books because these people are supposed to know what they're talking about. And don't they know what they're talking about? Because they've had a book published. So if they're, you know, if there's all these warnings, then I guess I need to take them seriously. And I was actually really, you know, uh, really nervous about um screwing up in some way and you know just like I don't know what I expected to happen bad but yeah um that yeah that 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 was in the back of my mind for a few years at the beginning absolutely absolutely well the the we were talking a little earlier about uh uh the, the the quantum the quantum nature of magic uh and uh 
if we sort of juxtapose uh, that sort of modern, more modern concept of time transcending things that that a particle can be in two places at the same time and in two times in the okay. Mm. Uh, uh, that that really sounds like a magical concept. Okay. Yeah. And uh, because we can't with our ruach, with our uh, intellect, which can only truly only go so far, even even Stephen Hawking, you know, can only take the brain that uh, right. Uh, it's got to break into a higher thing to, in order to get to, uh, get out of that. Uh, then the art form of medieval magic starts to make sense. Mm. Okay. Uh, that's where uh, stuff that we view as superstition now, uh, personifying concepts we really will never be able to wrap our meat brains around and, and just say, oh, well, from an artistic point of view, I'm just going to view that as a spirit. Mm. Okay. And, and uh, uh, so in other words, you, the black box, the quantum black box explanation uh, that would, that would, if we could really figure that out well enough, we'd, we'd see why a particle can be in two places at the same time, okay? Uh, Medieval magic was like uh, a dramatic art form black box. Mm. Okay, so I don't understand why it works, but I'm going to call that character Beelzebub, and I'm, <laughs> you know, going to crawl in there. Okay, and and I'm going to contact his black box with my black box, and I'm going to, you know, issue the orders and do stuff like that. No wonder. It worked, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay, but the 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 art form it, it would be like uh, like Michelangelo trying to explain the Mona Lisa by describing his paint, mm. okay. mm -hmm. or his brush. You know. Right. 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 You had this brush here, and you had these oils here. Uh, you could do that too. No, no, the magic is in the magician. Yeah, yeah. Period. And uh, uh, so I sort of see it as that uh, a quantum black box. So the magician, even modern magicians, even though on one level, when you write it in your diary and when you uh, try to explain it in a book or in a conversation, we can have a right, nice, rational logical kind of uh, conversation but in the ceremony you freaking buy into the fact that, that that demon is a real live demon and you just whipped it up from a real live hell and if you keep keep your eye on him and tell him to do something wise and under your supervision he's gonna do it for you you know you buy into it after yeah. Oh, no. It, yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, talk a lot about uh, um, 
Oh, and I just had Heather Green on uh, the podcast last week. She wrote a book, Lights, Camera, Witchcraft. It's about uh, the portrayal of witches and witchcraft in American movies and television and how the um, the silver screen uh, witch or magician and, and their magic is, is a lot different than ours. But for obvious reasons, I mean, if you filmed us doing a ceremony and expected it to be a blockbuster movie. Um, sorry, it's going to be boring. But for us in that ceremony, in that moment, um, we can do amazing things and that demon can be real and that angel can be real. And whether it is or not, I don't actually know. And I don't actually particularly care. Right. Because uh, if it works, it works. Now, I will say, you know, having a, a very basic understanding of quantum physics um, and the concepts of the different dimensions and whatnot, um, that's one thing to have sort of like like a, a, a bit of an understanding, but not very much. But just the theory of it, that's one thing. Um, I didn't truly start grasping the idea of like a fractal reality um dimensions anything like that until i started doing anakian uh magic and and working with the angels because they seem very fractal and very um i'm just gonna say interdimensional i don't know if that's going to be the right word or dimensional i don't know but um kind of made the the ideas of quantum physics and and dimensions a lot more real and tangible to me whereas before they were just interesting to to learn on like a science program yeah. um you know uh because i mean i'm not a you know i'm not a scientist so that's just not my world um so Remember when you used to defrag your computer you used to defrag it, yeah, your, yeah, yeah, yeah. your hard drive. I, I don't know. I've got an Apple here, and there's they don't let you defrag your. But uh, Enochian magic defrags your hard drive. Okay, and mm. okay, just working with it. You don't have to just working with it and, and uh, obliges you to, uh, uh, to view this, these, this breakdown of, of elements, sub-elements and sub-elements in a practical way is it's like giving you a, a, a lube job, okay? <laughs> it lubricates your, uh, uh, your psyche. And uh, with, without you even knowing it, you just studying a, a little bit of it, it's just like squirting WD-40 into your uh, into your your psyche, and it really, uh, without you even knowing it, then all of a sudden you're looking at everything in a little bit right uh, different. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I've told this story before, so I won't go into great detail, but I had uh, an initiatory experience, um, not during ritual, not during a, an initiation ritual or anything like that. Um, when I was in school, I was uh, getting my natural healthcare practice, practitioner certification. And I was also going through my training program with the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids. And I always describe that moment of um, like my personality, like my whole being just shattered into thousands of pieces. And I had to pick up each piece and, you know, I want to keep this part of me. Oh, I can definitely discard this part of me and go through that process. And two things that I've learned recently about that experience. And again, like I, I think... I, I, I'm going to equate this to my working with Anakian just because that's really the only new thing I've added to my, my magic, my daily practice uh, for like, you know, the past year or so or whatever is um, that initiatory process never actually ends. Uh, the really dramatic bit did, you know, um, I'm not living in, I mean, it wasn't a really traumatic experience, but I'm not living in that, in that state, you know, for the past 20 years or however long it's been, but it never, that, that, that moment, that initiatory experience um, doesn't go away. Like it's, it's in constant uh, development, number one. And number two, um, I don't know if, I, I'm now questioning, you know, when I describe it as me, you know, shattering into a thousand pieces more so than just, again, like the fractal nature of, of reality and, and how looking at that, experience in a in a bit of a different way and um yeah it's it's uh it's been interesting to to sort of reevaluate past experiences in in sort of like new concepts um you an initiation makes you a different person it's and it, sometimes it takes years for you to realize that because you're so close to yourself. You don't notice when you change. You don't notice when you're a different person because it seems to you that you're the same person. This what oh, I'm a completely different person. Like I, that, that pre-initiatory um, experience, Sean, and the post-Sean, to completely different people. Like we would be unrecognizable um, if, if the two of us were, were side by side and we were talking um, just to completely different people. It was, it happened really quickly. Like it was within I would, two months, maybe three months that I had that, oh, wow, I would, I would never have done that three months ago. Oh, oh my God, I'm different. And then the question, well, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? I'm different in what ways? And what does that mean for my life? 
and uh yeah um oh yeah totally totally different completely well i don't it takes me in my bonehead uh, to actually stop and think gee would i trade places with the me that i was six months ago And the answer is always, hell no. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're an idiot. You know, six months ago. Well, would I even trade places with where I was yesterday? He said, no. No. No, God, no. What a jerk I was yesterday, you know, compared to today. So. And, um, you know, big initiatory crises is, is identified in Western uh, terms. Uh, the big crisis is the uh, Holy Guardian Angel mm. is the first one. Uh, and until you reach that level of consciousness, you, you really don't know what is or is not in your own best interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, you know, my teacher Phyllis Seckler when I said I oh, you know I my life's all crap I want to do a goishik ceremony I want to whip up a demon to help help me pull my life together she said no don't do that you know oh, it's you know get your holy guardian angel and then you'll find out you won't need to do that and uh, you know and I argue but I'm starving in between. <laughs> you know, my family is starving. I think I want to do it. And she said, well, get that angel first. Well, like everything else, uh, uh, I'll stumble right into something rather than, I'd rather make a mis do something and make a mistake than not do it something at all. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, uh, that first goishi ceremony that she's warned me that I shouldn't do, uh, I ended up burning my eyes with oil of a Brahmal and it was a, it was a comedy of errors and everything else. <laughs> okay, it worked. It did absolutely everything that I wanted it to do except in a way that I had no idea it was going to happen. Right, yeah. Like that, okay? So my holy guardian angel might have said, you know, well, uh, per, maybe you should word your, <laughs> your wish, your wish, you know, a, a little more specific so that you don't uh, uh, go through all that discomfort. And, yeah. Uh, but no, I needed the discomfort too, I guess. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think, I mean, we all, anyone of us who's practiced magic has experienced the not perfectly worded um, request um, and, and the interesting, interesting results that uh, we get from that imperfectly worded request. Um, but isn't that the best way to learn? I mean, you can, everyone, everyone can warn you, you can read about it in all the books, but until you, you learn, because also too, like, I mean, we all, 
believe in magic. Um, but I think at the back of our minds, it's like, well, really though? So when you get a result and when you get, you know, the less than ideal uh, results or, or scenario because of your imperfectly worded uh, request, I think you, uh, you have that aha moment. Oh, this is real, number one. And number two, I need to, you know, be a little more on, on the ball because uh, I don't want to make that mistake again. Yeah. We all go through it. We need to. I think we need to, you know. Um, but I'd rather, I'd rather, like you say, do it and make a mistake than not do it at all. That that pre-Sean wouldn't have done it at all. Because um, yeah. heaven forbid I make a mistake. And heaven forbid uh, nothing happens. That that would just be the end of the world, you know. And I'm um, I'm an honor roll student. Um, I can't make a mistake. I can't do something and get no results. That would just mean I'm a complete failure, and I might as well just give up on life from this one mistake, you know. Now it's like I don't know what's going to happen. Let's find out. So you're not you're not going to know unless you try. I mean, I'm not going to do stupid things. I'm not going to be completely ridiculous. Um, but you got to try. Yeah. And that's. Uh... Like if I didn't have that mentality, I would never have started with the Anakian until I had all of my perfect tools that I made, handmade myself. And there's not one error on a single right. one of them. And when I make an error, I'm going to throw out that really expensive three foot by three foot piece of Sweetwood and buy another one and start all over again. You know what I mean? Um, that's just not practical. Well, the good analogy is uh, uh, if you write a book, okay, it's a, I'm the laziest person in the world. I don't like to work. <laughs> I don't like to. And it takes a lot of work to write a book. And uh, a lot of thought. It's a real pain in the ass. And uh, uh, I do absolutely everything I can to make it as perfect as I can. And I've got, I'm lucky to have great publishers and great editors. And they try to make sure that I don't misspell or uh, my English is as is, is correct as it can be. I've got all these charts and graphs and Hebrew and stuff and and uh, I do the best I can and uh, when the book comes out oh I'm so happy that the book comes came out proud of it thank god that's behind me and then people all over the world start saying I think you misspelled this experience uh, yeah. and uh, and most of the time they're right. And uh, and also most of the time I, I tell them, well, get a pencil and fix that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna have the publisher fix that thing, you know. You know let, it, let it go, you know. Well, and, I, 
I mean, in theory, it's no longer your book. I mean, the the copy of of your book that I have in my hands, I bought it, I own it. So if there's a mistake in there, a spelling error, then what 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 are you gonna do? Yeah, it, it's you know it's it's my property, so it's kind of my responsibility uh, to fix it myself. So um, uh, wouldn't it be simpler for me to grab a pen and add that s, that missing s, rather than expect the, the what the books to all be pulled and redone and like really, it's a spelling error. Get over it. So the, the fear of another typo or typos still remaining in the book, if I would have stopped and said, don't publish it yet, there may still be typos in there. You know, I'm pretty sure there is typos still left in that. Don't publish it until I, until I find it. I'll have a million other people read it for me. It had been stupid. Let yeah. it go. Do yeah. it better to do it and be embarrassed than not to do it at all right yeah absolutely i agree i agree i mean and you know not even talking about like deadlines that you're contractually you know bound to it's just not even that like you put that aside you're writing a book with the idea the purpose of publishing it if you get, oh, wait, just let me reread it one more time, just in case. But you can say that you can go through from start to finish, not find a typo and still think there's a typo in there and be like, well, I obviously missed the typo. So hold off again. Let me reread it. And to what end? Right. To what, you know, um, at, at a certain point, you just got to say, screw it. I'm doing it. And but that's life, though. That's life. Yeah. And that's, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, all of this talk, like th these people, you know, you have to have all the tools, everything has to be ready, everything has to be perfect, blah, 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 blah. Um, what are they actually saying? Like, are they trying to, um, I don't know, maybe conflate their egos a bit? Because they're they're coming from you know like they're they practice Anakian, and so obviously they have all the perfect tools and they made them all perfectly. So they must be up here, and I'm just all down here. You know what I mean? So is I I think maybe uh, maybe it's coming from ego a little bit. You know, these, these, oh, you have to have, you have to, you have, you have, you know what I mean? Because it, it just, you would just assume then, because these people are are practicing what you want to practice, that they have all these perfect things that they were able to perfectly make. So I, I, I wonder if these, these warnings, I'll call them, are coming more from ego than from a uh right well position and there's a certain uh you know pride in in uh knowledge you know having a good uh enochian education and uh and uh still not be a practitioner yourself mm, yeah and, and when they uh uh observe 
someone that is focused on practicing uh, and they may not uh, uh, have the same, you know, level of Enochian education. Uh, you know, it's, there's an old unfair statement about uh, uh, those uh, 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 what is it, those who uh, uh, those that can can do those that can't teach yes there yeah. you go. that's yeah. exactly that and uh so they could they could be very you know very knowledgeable uh and still not be able to 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 see the the you know what's what's truly important with the, with the work and uh so i i doubt that anyone that's this too uh, uh, picky about uh, the, the, their Enochian or Goetic or any kind of technical magic. Anybody who's too picky uh, either is a, a super master themselves and de deserve a great deal of, of respect, or they are uh have been educated or enamored by things that they have read themselves and have a great backlog of things they've read themselves and uh, uh can uh, carry on a, a good enochian conversation and can be very uh arrogant in their uh sharing of that in information so it's, uh, it, I don't know, uh, I don't, I'm a Cancerian, so I've got very thin skin. <laughs> and uh, so every bad review uh, just breaks my heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a while, uh, somebody said that, uh, commented on my book about Aleister Crowley's Thoth Tarot, that I must not know very much about Crowley because I'm so uh, uh, disrespectful to, uh, to Crowley. Oh, geez. And, and uh, you know, and just, you know, sort of failed to grasp the, the fact that uh, uh, not being disrespectful, but just uh, uh, I'm totally aware of his good points and his yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I mean <laughs> and his I mean, bad points yeah like bad points could be very embarrassing themselves. So you know I'm not afraid to say, well, thank you for telling us how you feel, Mr. Crowley. You know yeah. I mean you. I I have seen a few Thelemites on Twitter um, be like, basically like, you know, Crowley is, is perfect, no flaws, da, 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 da. Uh, so that kind of doesn't surprise me, but I mean, Crowley was a human and we all have good points and we all have bad points. So when you, when you point out the bad points from a historical figure, that's not disrespectful. That's just history you know it's just it's history and it's okay 
to do. Um, I mean, I think people love, some people love to uh, really Crowley bash and right. almost, almost as if like he wasn't even a person, he was just his bad points. And that's equally as ridiculous. Right. You know, um, are you that one dimensional? No. Guess what? Neither was Crowley, you know? Um, I mean, we can talk, you know, that's that's a, a podcast episode in in itself, just talking about Crowley and talking about his good points and his uh, bad points, you know? Uh, I, I mean, he's a fascinating character. Fascinating character. Well, yeah. whether you're Thalamite or not, I mean, you don't have to be a Thalamite, obviously. You don't have to be a Thalamite to, to find him um, fascinating and intriguing. I have so many biographies of... of uh, on Crowley, uh, just because he's a fascinating character. And, you know, every author of these biographies has their own biases that they, uh, they flavor the biography with. So having a variety of, of biographies, um, you get a better sense, like one loved focusing on his descent into poverty and another one barely mentioned his financial struggles, you know, and, and uh, um, how hard his, his living situation was when he was, was broke. So you have two completely different, not necessarily viewpoints, but uh, the way two authors look at his finances so chances are, you know, what's that old saying? There's my truth, your truth, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing with, uh, with these uh, biographies. Yeah. Kaczynski's uh, Perdurabo is probably the, the, the most objective and, yeah. and complete. I didn't expect it to be with him being uh, a member of the OTO. I, uh, I figured it was going to be good because um, I only hear good things about it. Um, but I figured there would be like a, like a, you know, sort of like a, a gloss over pot, you know, not like he wouldn't mention, you know, like the, the, the bad points of Crowley, but that he would maybe you know, have a, a little bit of a nicer gloss about Crowley as a person and which isn't the case. And it's so good. I thought at first it was a little too big of a biography because there's so many, you know, secondary characters and, and tertiary characters in Crowley's life that um, Richard um, puts a lot of focus on in, in Perdurabo. And at first I'm like, is this really necessary? But once you get, you know, really into them to the meat of the book and you're just getting this whole wonderful, complete picture about Crowley's life. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, this reading about all these people in, right. in, in this depth um, is so worth it because it really fleshed out uh, Crowley's life. There's so much about Crowley's life that some biographies never even mentioned right. you know so it's like oh this actually happened really 
that's fascinating, you know, and a lot of it is, a lot of it is like good stuff too. I'm like, how, why, how did you leave that? How did I miss that? You know, why is that not included in your biography? It doesn't make any sense. So yeah, that's uh, Perdurabo is um, from all the ones I've read. Uh, probably the the best. I do want to get uh, John Simmons uh, biography just because it's so like anti Crowley. Great beast. Yeah. Um, that that um, I'd like to read it just to see what what his perceptions of Crowley are, you know, and how how badly he portrays him. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. Anybody who writes a book, I got to give them credit for writing a book and finishing it, getting it published, and getting it published, okay? But it seemed unduly uh, small. Yeah, yeah. The attitude toward Crowley was uh, obviously of someone that uh, uh, that knew him personally, especially in the the last years of his uh, of his life, which were very uh, uh, sad, and uh, the you know he's obviously such a a big character that, and the the book was written uh, so soon after Crowley's death, as to uh, as to suggest that it was uh, uh, probably. Uh, written from the point of view of someone who had been sort of personally hurt by uh, his experience with mm. uh, with Crowley and uh, the fact that he had seen him in such uh, uh, modest and uh, unfortunate circumstances while uh, so many other people uh, we're prepared to, uh, you know, deify him, you know, and he said, no, you know, that wasn't like that at all. And so you, you sort of see that uh, in it, or at least that's, that's uh, uh, my take on it. I, I, I didn't enjoy it. It seemed like uh, uh, it was, uh, kind of a sensationalist uh, uh, yellow journalism. Yeah, kind of. that's what I gather from everything I've heard about it. But wouldn't that make a better book if you were personally hurt by Crowley? Uh, wouldn't that make a far better book? It Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Don't give me some crap uh, biography. Uh, Tell me your story with Crowley and how he hurt you or damaged you or whatever. That's going to be far more interesting to me. And if, if it was to happen today, uh, there is a, a, 
a wonderful, that is a literary genre in itself, that really candor like that, honesty like, like that in a, in, a, in a work was uh, not going to be a bestseller, popular, sensational book in those days. Oh, that's true. Yeah. 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 So this is this is 1940 what nine or something when uh, when that was written or or came out, and so he I think he just wanted to uh, uh, who knows what he wanted. Uh, a lot of the writers and authors during during that period weren't uh, uh, they they always considered themselves gentlemen amateurs okay instead of serious authors right right and uh, biographies like uh, Kaczynski's he's a serious scholar okay and an excellent writer too. Yeah. And uh, so it's uh, just a totally different kind of uh, kind of book. The uh, the brilliance and the originality of uh, uh, Kenneth Grant sort of came out of that that same same period, but uh, uh, he. There's my phone ringing there. He was so original that uh, uh, he was sort of, you know, he created his own his own magical universe. Mm -hmm. uh, hang on for a second. Yeah. With your uh, name and phone number. Hey, we'll try to get back with you. Commercial break, everyone. We get a lot of robo calls. Okay, I've got a landline, and uh, so uh, only certain people know their landline number. So we never pick it up because mm. we get these robo calls. And I have to confess, I delight in torturing. Robo calls. Uh, <laughs> and and um, it's, you know, especially when, when it's obvious that they're dishonest and it's, yeah. a, and it's a scam and there's a real human being behind it. Uh, and we used to get uh, calls from uh, uh, like evangelists. Okay. Evangelical uh, ministries and things. And when my wife was not near and she couldn't hear me do it, I would keep them on the line as long as possible <laughs> and just act like a complete moron. <laughs> Almost ready to give them as much money as they want, and we just keep keep them going and going and going. And I would lead them in conversation so that they 
so that they confirm that they're racists, that they confirm that they're bigoted and sexist and every, and I just, uh, <laughs> I'd make them think, well, I'm that way too, you know? <laughs> well, we are too, you know? Oh, God, that's <laughs> and hilarious. And then Constance would hear me do it and says, he's playing with you, hang up, hang up. <laughs> Just be cruel to you, you know. Oh, I love it. So I love it. You terrible thelemites. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm so small. Oh, that's funny. I love it. I, I I've done that a few times with with robocalls, but uh, that just kind of got. I'm like, I'm too busy for this shit. Like, I just. I'm just hanging up. I can't. I don't have time. Yeah. And I'm happier for it. You know, I, (laughs) even though I'm fiendish, (laughs) I made myself mad at myself. Oh, that's hilarious. I love it. I love it. I, um, I, I, I had one on the phone. I had to have been 15, 20 minutes before he caught on that I was just playing him and that was a lot of fun. But like I said, I mean, I just I just hang up now. I mean, I don't have time. I'm too busy. I have too much stuff to do. Um, I have to work. Yeah. I mean, I work from I work from home. I work for myself, but still, you know, um, I just I, I have things to do. I can't. I can't. It is yeah. fun, though. Uh, I've got so much to do, or let's say I have so much I could be doing, and should. <laughs> I'm looking for any excuse to, to not do it. So, there you go. So really, the robo fault, the, the robo call. You're doing me a favor, so I, I can play you. I can have fun playing you, and I don't have to do the stuff that I should be doing. So thank you. Call again. <laughs> oh. oh i love it good times i mean you know if you're gonna call me and and try a scammy um i i don't have qualms right about, you know um playing you being mean wasting your time because i mean okay technically that's their job uh they're getting paid to do that um and you know, the longer I keep them on the phone, the less money they're making. So maybe that's a bad thing, but I don't care because you're scamming people. So, you know, I I don't have any real moral, you know, ethical issues when it comes to that. But it just, it got boring. I'm like, I I don't want to do this again because they're calling four times a day. Um, So I'm just gonna, you know just get on with my work and screw it, you know? Anyways, anyways. Um, so is there anything, um, anything you want to talk about? Anything you want to touch on? Uh, well, the closest thing I have to a blog is my, uh, my daily Facebook 
thing, okay? For, uh, all through the pandemic, we're coming up on two years now. I do uh, from 15 minutes to a half hour every day, uh, a live reading or show or little class or something mm. on my Facebook page. And every one of them uh, goes to YouTube. Okay. So uh, the if you or your listeners are, are uh, uh, interested in any of that, I've, I've read all my books or most of my books. I read the whole book. Right. Yeah. Okay. okay. Through every every day. Right now, I'm talking about I'm doing uh, uh, excerpts from my lectures and things like that. So. I, it's hard to, I was thinking about like, do I have a favorite Lon Milo Duquette book? And that's really a tough call. I like uh, Anakian Vision Magic a lot. Um, you know, the way you, you go through um, the tools and explain them. And like, it's it just, it's such a great book, you know, for anyone that wants to, um, is curious about Anaki magic, wants to start Anaki magic. Like that's only, you, you know, I don't know if you need to know, you don't need to be an expert on the tools, the table, the sigillum, you know, the way you describe, you know, the process of how they came about. You don't need to be an expert on them. But to understand, to have that kind of understanding, to be able to like read about it and be like, oh, okay, I kind of, I kind of get it, um, I think is good. And that book is brilliant for that. So that book I really like, uh, Low Magic, I really like. And I think because it was so autobiographical, because like you threw in so many like anecdotes about your your life in that one that I really liked. And yeah, so those two definitely. And I think maybe allow me to introduce had some good anecdotes in there as well that are worth reading. But see, I'm fascinated with people and that's why I started this this podcast was basically to just have people come on learn about them, have them talk about themselves. So, you know, those just learning about people, I just, I, I enjoy so much. So all of those sort of anecdotes from your personal life um, just really appeal to me. So, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I can't seem to approach uh, any subject except how it, uh, affects me. <laughs> I must be insanely narcissistic because I can't understand uh, anything that just purely theoretical. Right. Uh, I've got a, the, the theory has to be, uh, I don't care about any of this stuff unless I was doing it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I wouldn't understand any of it unless I understood um, how how it works when I do it. Yeah. Or 
or when I'm learning it and stuff. So everything's anecdotal. Uh, for many years, I had a nine to five uh, job. And everybody says, well, well you, work isn't personal. You know, you get fired, people come, people go. You get uh, criticized, you get praised. Nothing's personal. It's not personal. Don't take it personal. No, it's all freaking personal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything's personal with me, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you sound like my brother. He's a cancer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, but that's it. I did a whole series, I think 12 or 13 uh, uh, Zoom workshops. Uh, one of them was the Enochian one, which is four workshops. And one was Goetia, which is three, uh, or I mean, uh, Tarot, which is three. Uh, for the last two years, and uh, uh, those have all been recorded and are and are available. The pandemic workshops, like, yeah. yeah, there's one on the abyss and one on uh, uh, fortune telling and and uh, uh, Nokian and the Holy Guardian Angel and the Knights Templar and Goetia and things like. That. Uh, so it's been keeping me busy. Yeah, uh, I needed something to replace all of that travel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I'm doing another series in December uh, for uh, uh, the Chinese. Okay. And uh, uh, for some of uh, the Thoth Tarot, uh, understanding Alistair Crowley's Thoth Tarot, my book, uh, was translated in, into Chinese. And it is such a, uh, a textbook of all of the collateral magical stuff uh, uh, that goes with the, the Thoth Tarot. It's a, it's a book on magic, and it's a book on tarot, and it's a book on Thelema, and mm -hmm. it's a book on Alistair Crowley. And uh, it's a uh, uh, a book on just you know basic Kabbalistic principles too. So it's a great textbook to be translated in another country, right? Because my lectures, you know, are relatively easy to, to translate with an interpreter right by my side, and then they've got the text too with all of the charts and and graphs and stuff. So I don't have to worry about handouts and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now the Chicken Kabbalah and the Son of Chicken Kabbalah, which is the initiatory uh, uh, three-degree initiatory uh, self-initiation things that goes with Chicken Kabbalah, are in Chinese or will soon be in Chinese. Fantastic. Too. That's awesome. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, I'm uh, working on uh, on those because I have to, you know, provide a translator the script and stuff. It's it's work, 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to keep busy here in my dotage. <laughs> it's um your uh YouTube channel is did you send me is that one of the links that you sent me? I should check. Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, no. oh, I've got a, a Reverb Nation. That's my music. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then, uh, then Reverb they, Nation and your Amazon. Right. Because, uh, like, basically all of your books people can find on Amazon, among right. other places. Um, but no, no, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pull up the, uh, I'll just go on YouTube and uh, get the link and I'll put uh, the link to your YouTube channel uh, in with the show notes as well. So people can just, instead of, you know, them having to go to YouTube and, and do the search, they can just click on the link and it'll just take them there instead. So just make it easier for the listeners there on that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, um, uh, so besides your, your course in December, um your i shouldn't say chinese course uh your course for uh your chinese audience in december uh what's what's happening in the future any any new books in the works uh, yeah i guess i'll be having to do that uh i've got a couple other other uh uh projects for publishers and other uh and other little things that I'm going to have to uh, get out of the way, get out of the way first. And uh, my tarot deck is going into now third printing with a new addition uh, to that. And uh, uh, re a new addition with a new publisher of my book, uh, Homemade Magic. Okay. Okay. Uh, is, is also... Uh, uh, coming out from the same publisher that does my tarot deck. Excellent. Tarot of ceremonial magic. That's a nice deck. Well, it's it's funky, but it's ours. Yeah. Know. No, it's a nice deck. I like it. I like it a lot. Well, thank you so much, Lon, for being on the podcast. Uh, like I said, I really appreciate it. Uh, this was a good chat. I had a lot of fun. And um, yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you. So you enjoy that Northern California winter, or well, well, I guess winter, getting into winter, um, as my apparently uh, my first snowstorm of the season is rolling in as we speak. I think we're supposed to get like something like fifteen inches of snow tonight. So, yeah, and it's it's going to start out as rain and then not 15 inches. What am I talking about? Um, uh, 15 centimeters of, of snow. And uh, so, yeah, I it's I'm probably going to wake up tomorrow, um, tomorrow morning to a big mess. Well, so. be careful. Don't be driving around in it too much. Oh, I won't. You know, that's the beauty of, of working from home is, um, you know, uh, in the winter times, if the days just crap, it's like, well, I don't have to go anywhere. So I'm just going to sit by the fire. Um, I'm in my ritual room right now and I have a fireplace in here. I'm like, I'm just going to sit by the fire and make magic. All right. 
Well, yeah. enjoy, enjoy, stay cozy. Oh, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Um, yeah, okay. So for the listeners, um, all of Lon's links are in the show notes. So definitely check out his YouTube channel, uh, Facebook, um, go on Amazon, buy his books, everything. And uh, there are my links there. So you can uh, follow me all over social media, go to my website, do some shopping because my products are amazing. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, until next week's episode, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lux Files. You'll find all the guest links in the show notes, as well as the link www.laylokanzawin.com slash links. That link will get you to my page of links, where you can then go to my Laylokanzawin website, the Lux Files page, and my Laylokanzawin YouTube channel that has all the Lux Files videos. It also has all my social media links there, so you can follow me and the Lux Files. And don't forget to subscribe to the Lux Files wherever you get your podcasts. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving me a review. Until next time.